Would you open your Bibles to three separate and distinct texts uh, this morning? And as you turn in your Bibles to these three texts, here they are. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, Colossians chapter 3, and 1 Peter chapter 3. As you turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, stick a finger in Colossians chapter 3 and stick a finger in 1 Peter chapter 3. I want to encourage you to hold in your mind the truth we just sang because it, it bears repeating. He is my victory. It's the presence of the Spirit of God in the Christian that is our victory. The Christian life is not finally accomplished when we buckle down hard enough or resolve hard enough, but it is the actual presence of the living God in the Christian that gives any power whatsoever for Christian living. The presence of the Spirit of God in the Christian is the hope that no matter where you are this morning, you can walk like Jesus because the spirit of Jesus is in you, present and, and united with you, given to you, yours. And so I want to just make sure that banner is over everything we're about to say and everything we're about to read in the scriptures first scripture I want to read is from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 28 and 29. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 28, 29. In the same way, the same way that Christ loved the church, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Mark those two words. Nourishes it and cherishes it. Just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, verse 19. Colossians chapter 3, verse 19. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, 
so that your prayers may not be hindered. Let's pray. Father, we're in the middle of a series where we're thinking about plucking up weeds, plucking up sins that really arise in our daily lives. And Lord, you've been faithful and kind even to give me testimonies of the fruit you're giving from this focus. Lord, we pray you'd go deeper. Pray you'd not stop your work halfway, but you'd help us, grow us, uh, grow us in maturity, grow us in our marriages, grow us so that uh, even those who aren't married are deeply concerned about the state of marriages at Emmanuel. Lord, we pray that you would do this through our weakness and our unworthiness. Lord, we're unworthy but we trust that you have loved us. And so we're gonna venture forward into your word, trusting you can meet us and help us. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Two quick things before we just launch into the texts we're looking at this morning. One, we're a bit of an unusual series. We're not just walking through a passage bit by bit, but we're really taking our cue from these passages about the daily lives of believers, and especially in marriage, and parenting, and child training, and work, and we're looking at particular sins that arise in those circumstances. Sometimes you come at Scripture and it gives you a great big vision for what can go right, and other times it really instructs us to notice what can go wrong, and to pick out those weeds, and that's what we're trying to do. Second thing, I have been occasionally accused of having long introductions to my sermons. And if you're looking for a way to explain last Sunday's sermon, it was the introduction to this sermon. And so there you go. So let's uh, jump in. We have one last point to cover for wives and then three points we hope this morning uh, for the husbands. The thing we wanna focus on, uh, we looked a few weeks ago at different sins that uh, women are prone to in marriage. And we looked, uh, first of all, at the sin of disrespect. And then we looked at really the kind of the flip side of that coin, which is becoming a doormat, equally sinful, to just be someone who's able to be steamrolled, not someone who's got a sense of their worth and value in the image of God, and that they're accountable to God ultimately, and not to their husband. And in addition to disrespect and to being a doormat, I want to add the weed that we need to pull of contention. Contention. The book of Proverbs speaks repeatedly about a kind of wife who seems to stir up fights. Let me read you the verses I'm talking about because they, they appear repeatedly in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 19.13. A wife's quarreling is a continual dripping of rain. Or Proverbs 21.9 and 25.24 say the same thing. It's better to live in a corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. Or Proverbs 21.19, it's better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. Proverbs 27, 15, and 16, a continual dripping of rain on a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife are alike. To restrain her is to restrain the wind 
or to grasp oil in one's right hand. Proverbs 27, 15 through 16. So the word quarreling there in the Proverbs that keeps coming up is translated three different ways by three different uh, good Bible uh, translations. I'll just mention those particular, the way the word is translated because I think it fills out the idea. The Christian Standard Bible has nagging. The English Standard Version and the NIV has quarrelsome. And then the New American Standard Bible has contentious. And you kind of put it together and you, you kind of get the gist of what's being said. Contentious, quarrelsome, nagging. A wife can clearly become a nag, a fight starter, a source of contention. She can storm through the house like a wind that can't be stopped. You can try to hold her back, it won't work. She's like oil in one's hands, says the proverb. She can blast off phone texts full of complaints, bring up the most hurtful failures from your past and press them in like daggers. She can greet you at the door with a blast of anger. Every interaction with her can be like a cold rain to the face. She's touchy, and it doesn't take much to set her off. In our day, some women will actually boast of this characteristic. I drove past a car the other day that boasted that the driver was fueled by witch dust, except it didn't say witch dust. I'll let you substitute the W for the letter you feel is appropriate. That's the spirit we're talking about. Christian women can get like this. Some have even made a way of life that they will not repent of. But now we have to think for a moment because we're, we're after cures. We're not just after the sting of conviction. We're after cures. And if you see yourself as having been quarrelsome, how do you quit? What is driving quarrelsomeness? I wonder if there's some help in the ESV translation of Proverbs 21.19. I found this insightful. Listen, listen to what it says. It's the only uh, one of those verses that addresses what might be causing the quarrelsomeness. And the ESV translates Proverbs 21.19, it is better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. Fretting. It's good old-fashioned worry. Anxiety. A fear. And then taking matters into your own hands. Proverbs 37, 8 says, fret not, it only leads to evil. When you're worried, it's never neutral. When you're worried, there's fruits. When you're fretful, it has effects. And the idea here is that a fretful, anxious person who's churning on the inside will create circumstances where everything's churning on the outside. Contention within will result in contention without. Quarreling on the inside and worrying, 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 spinning around, going, what can I do to make this situation different will result in quarrelsomeness. So how do you calm your anxieties? Or better, how do we put them to death? The best way to kill anxiety is to trust our sovereign Savior. The remedy to panic everything out of, out of control is be still and know that I am God. It's interesting how in every passage about wives and marriage, now I've noticed this, this is very interesting, Every single passage that addresses wives specifically as wives also addresses her sovereign Savior and the importance of trust in Him. Every single time. 
Wives, submit to your husbands as to him because he's awesome. No. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Right? And then again in Colossians. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And then in 1 Peter chapter uh, 3, 4 through 6, it says this. It says, this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. So the submitting was actually downwind from something more foundational, hoping in God. And so I just want to say that if you find that, you know, that's you to some degree, you're kind of ready to pounce ready to, and by the way, husbands, if your, if your wife reminds you of something that you said you'd do and you didn't do, that's not called nagging. That, okay, what we're talking about is an anxious, on edge, quarrelsome, ready for a fight spirit that can be subdued by understanding that God is the one who's sovereign over all your circumstances. That the same God who's orchestrating every day of your life gave you that husband with all of his strengths and weaknesses. And hope in God really kills the heart of anxiety and fretfulness that drives quarrelsomeness and nagging and all kinds of other sins. So, let me pull this together. We've said three things to wives. Talked about disrespect and pulling out that weed and then the whole issue being a doormat. And now we're looking at contentiousness. And I want to tell you about a conversation I had a couple weeks ago uh, with a dear sister here at Emmanuel. Uh, she's a sister I respect greatly and I was running uh, some of these points by her and asking her thoughts and what she thought about these things and how they applied to herself or or women, and as I walked through a disrespect and not being a doormat and contentiousness, she said, you know, in the last few months, I have had some of the hardest conversations I've ever had to have with my husband. So she's not being a doormat. But I've been able to respect him, and I've been freer from anxious nagging than I've ever been at any point in our married lives. And then she said this. She said, and my words are being received by him better than they've ever been received by before. Isn't that amazing? Greater respect, not being a doormat, greater uh, sense of honor and not a nagging tone, and all of a sudden you're getting through. And of course, some of you are married to men you won't get through to. There's, no, there's nothing we teach on marriage where if you do it perfect, your spouse will be perfect. There was a play in Toronto years ago called I Love You, You're Perfect, Now Change. And, uh, and so there, there, there's, no, there's no silver bullet that we can do that just changes our spouse, but we can know we're being faithful. I'm feeling really echoey. I hear. Anyone else hearing that, or is it just me? Okay. Thank you. Echo. Thank you. Okay, now for the husbands. We, we've, we've seen that wives are called to submit, and husbands are called to love. And I, I want to make sure you don't miss what I'm saying. 
I want to be really clear. I am not saying, and I said this in the first sermon, but it's going to bear repeating, that wives are called to submit and husbands are called to lead. I am not saying that wives are called to submit and men are called to lead. Now turn to the person next to you and say, he is not saying, I mean it, the wives are called to submit and husbands are called to lead. Okay, we're clear on that. And the reason I'm not saying that is because the emphasis on, of the text is not on the husband taking leadership. The emphasis of the text is that the husband has leadership. It's there. The husband is the head of the wife. It is a, an indicative, as one person has pointed out, not an imperative. It's a fact, not a command. And so we've got whole men's ministries devoted to lead, 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 lead. And it makes a man think his primary responsibility is to exert authority. When the Bible's approach is to assume that authority, if you are the husband of a wife, you will influence her. If you are the father of children, you will influence them. It's one of the things that's fun about being your pastor for a long time is you see these little rapscallions running around and within about three seconds, you can tell who they are. They look like their parents and they get a little older and guess what? They act like their parents too. And you say the same thing about mine. So, the emphasis of the scriptures, and I'm, I'm not going to make you turn there, but Ephesians, husbands, sorry, wives submit to your husbands as unto the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife. It's a fact. It is the reality. It is the case. So the, the New Testament's burden is not to say, hey, you better lead. The New Testament's burden is to say, you are the leader. Now, how do you lead? How do you lead? That's where the focus needs to be. The focus needs to be on the kind of leadership that is given. The leadership's inevitable. It'll either be bad or good. But it's meant to be loving. And so I want to point out three weeds that are not loving. And the first of them is harshness. Harshness. We read that. In Colossians 3, here you are, you're talking to a bunch of pagans who just got saved, you're the Apostle Paul, you're gonna spend about you know, 140 characters giving the husband counsel, what do you say? Love them and don't be harsh. And every man in the congregation goes, yeah, you, you got my number, in a hurry. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh. I'm happy to switch to this microphone if that serves us better or do whatever. Okay. The word harsh that we saw in the English Standard Version, and if you're, if you're new to the church and you're hearing me hear, talk about all these versions, there, by God's grace, in the English language, we have a number of good English translations. And more often than not, we can gain a little bit. Sometimes they're, they're not gonna take things exactly the right way, or the exact, sorry, that's not what I intended to say right now. Um, sometimes they will disagree, but for the most part, you're gonna find they're saying the same thing and actually helping you with some shades of nuance that you might not get from just one. So in the English Standard Version, we have this command, don't be harsh. 
I believe most other translations are going to translate, don't be embittered. Husbands, don't be embittered with your wife. And I, I like this actually because embittered is really the heart attitude. Harshness is the action that flows from the heart attitude. When a man gets embittered with his wife, then the tendency is to stop being gentle and to begin to be short, irritable, and harsh. Um, harsh men tend to be irritable instead of generous in spirit and easygoing. They tend to be mean-spirited instead of gracious in spirit. Their criticisms tend to paint with a broad and generalizing brush. You always, you never. Rather than honey, though, even though you do so many things well, there was this one thing I wanted to mention. So they're more like a bulldozer than a surgical operation. Harsh men have trouble seeing their own pride and sinful anger because they believe their perception of their wife's faults flows from their commitment to truth and honesty and righteousness. Because I'm so committed to being truthful and honest and righteous, I got a read on you and it's not looking good. So brothers, we have to ask, are you, are you harsh and embittered? I was really helped years ago by Jim Wilson's little book. You can get this as a PDF online. You could read it in like an hour. It's actually a, a little book, but it's actually only the first chapter I'm after. Jim Wilson's little book, How to Be Free from Bitterness. And uh, one of the things that I, I think he points out in that chapter, if memory serves correctly, is that bitterness is unlike other sins. And this was so helpful to me. And what makes bitterness distinct as a sin is that the bitter person is never looking at themselves. So if I lie, if I tell a lie, what's staring me in the face all the rest of the day until I repent? There's that lie, there it is, right in front of you. Are you gonna admit it or not? You know, if you steal, well then now you have something that's not yours in your possession, staring you in the face. You've stolen, okay? But if you're bitter, you're not thinking about you. You're thinking about the other person, right? They never listen to me. They never do what I ask. They never respect me. And it's, it's, it's all outward focused. And so bitterness can't look back at itself and even notice it's there. Because it's consumed with what it's seeing in the other person. And so bitterness can go undetected for a long, long time. I, I think bitterness has gone undetected in my life for a long period of time. Christy had to point it out to me. And if you see that your soul is bitter, you, you need to repent. You need to, you need to stop treating it like other sins. Like it's okay to just be cold and callous and not warm-hearted. And you need to recognize that it's a sin to be repented of. Listen to how the Bible calls us to repent. It's beautiful. Ephesians 4.31. Let all bitterness, and wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Brothers, bitterness must be put away, cut off, plucked out, the same kind of intensity you expect a guy to deal with pornography in his life ought to be given to bitterness. It ought to be driven away, untolerated, 
as a sin. Eyes gouged out, hands cut off to get rid of bitterness. Okay, next, next point. First of all, we need to pick out the, the weed of harshness and then we need to replace it with the seed of cherishing. Cherishing. Now, I love this. I know I'm getting a lot into what different words mean, but this is so good. The word cherish, this, this is just good. This is husbanding 101 in one word. So if you feel like, I'm a simple man, give me something simple. Here it is. The word cherish, which we read in Ephesians 5, that he's to cherish his wife, his own body, means to keep warm. It means to keep warm. Now, men, you know whether you're doing it or not. You know. You know. It takes about three seconds to feel that temperature rise or fall. You know. You know. How are you doing? Fine. No, you're not fine. No, that's not what's happening. <laughs> we are not fine anymore. Okay? Is she warm? I'm called to lead. Okay but you're called to lead in such a way that her temperature does not go sub-zero in the process, which, mean, which means the pacing of the leadership is dependent on the temperature of the wife, okay? It means that if, if, if you call your wife and say, boss gave me a great promotion, we're moving to Milwaukee. You following, babe? You're gonna to go to cold Milwaukee. It's gonna be cold in Milwaukee, it's gonna be cold in your bed. Versus honey, boss offered me the dream job. It's in Milwaukee. Wouldn't wanna go unless you're on board. I wanna think about this, I wanna pray about this, I wanna talk about this. You talk like that, you go to Anchorage, Alaska, you'd be warm. And brothers, if she's not warm, ordinarily the solution is on you. I heard a pretty amazing preaching clip the other day. I don't know who the preacher was. I think I found out maybe who he was quoting, but I'm still not 100% sure. I think he was actually quoting William Golding, who wrote uh, The Lord of the Flies. But anyway, this preacher was making use of this quote, and, and he says, if you find this quote, you find out the preacher was horrible, Sorry, I couldn't find the rest of it. But I thought there was some insight here. It says a female is designed by God to receive. And whatever she receives, she incubates, multiplies, and gives it back to the male. She was built to do that. So whatever you give to a woman, she will receive it, she'll multiply it, she'll give it back to you. If you give a woman a sperm, you'll never get a sperm back. She'll multiply it, give you a baby. If you give her a house, she'll multiply it and give you a home. If you give her groceries, she will give you a meal. If you give her frustration, she'll multiply it well, you know where that goes. So brothers, if you don't like what you're getting, 
change what you're giving. If you sow harshness and bitterness, you will find what James told us, the righteousness of God, sorry, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Your anger will make more anger, frustration and deceit and disrespect in her. Stop that cycle. Lean into God's kindness and cherish her and keep her warm. Now, I hope it's abundantly clear from the first three points I made as I'm talking about men and women that I think women are sinners and I think women can sin and I think women can be grossly responsible for how bad a marriage is. And I hope it's now also abundantly clear that if a man sees those bad fruits in his wife, he should primarily be focusing on what he gives to her to fix the problem. It was interesting to me that all those quarrelsome verses in the Bible actually never, rarely, we saw the one instance where they did, but they rarely deal with the cause of the quarrelsomeness, and it can be him. You feed her with frustration, difficulty, terribleness all the time, and you will get quarreling. You get that kind of difficulty. Okay, next point. Pluck the seed of neglect and plant the seeds of nourishment. I'm trying to be chill because this is all really intense in and of itself. Okay, I'm assuming no uh, loud voices are needed for this to pierce deeply. But remember Grant Teal. If it hurts, the answer is repentance, humility, and really even a chance to leave a legacy as we confess our sins. Okay, plucking the seed of neglect, planting the seed of nourishment. Husbands are called to love their wives, and loving means doing everything to help their wives be more like Jesus. That's the whole point of Ephesians 5. Husbands, uh, husbands love your wives like Christ loved the church. What did he do? He gave himself for her so she could be completely sanctified in heaven. He did everything for her to make her Christ-like. And even though this call to care for your wife is plain as day, many men neglect their wives. In fact, at one sense, at some point in a marriage, every man has been negligent of his wife. They don't listen to them much. They don't talk to them much. They don't encourage them much. They don't fellowship in the word with them much. And they give their wives as little of their time and emotional energy as they possibly can. I was talking to a missionary uh, to, uh, to the Afghan people, and he said one of the things he does when he hosts discipleship conferences for married Afghans is he has the men just sit and listen to their wives for five uninterrupted minutes. And the wives come out of that session on cloud nine having had this once-in-a-lifetime experience. We should all make sure that none of our wives feel that being listened to for five minutes was a once-in-a-lifetime experience. We should all make sure our wives are not being neglected. Now, there are at least three reasons why men neglect their wives. At least three reasons why men neglect their wives. And if you're dating a man right now and you think, he would never neglect me, he is all about me, that's actually one of my first reasons. I want to talk to you about that, how that's going for you. Sorry, guys. 
So the first reason a man neglects his wife is often a, a dynamic that comes between the engagement and the marriage process. You see, when a man is pursuing a wife to marry her, he has one thought on his mind all the time. Get the girl. How are you gonna get the girl? And he's 110% devoted to that cause. And then, once he gets the girl, his 110% focus doesn't have one place to go. It's also on the work relationship, also on the kids' relationship. And the man who longed to be with her winds up finding that care for her winds up eclipsed. I was a stupid idiot this way. When Christy and I got married, I'm pursuing Christy. I'm all about Christy. We get married and I start laying out schedules like we'll go to work all day, spend like an hour and a half together at supper. Then I'm going back to the study all night. And she's like, well, could we just like hang out and sit on the couch and talk? And I'm like, couch time? Like, What's the purpose of couch time? Man, you need couch time or some reasonable facsimile thereof. Men often have a hard time balancing the various responsibilities God gives them in marriage. And brothers, we simply have to learn to walk and chew gum at the same time. If you don't, you're going to find that you're living with a stranger when the kids leave. You're gonna find that you've got a woman who promised to be with you, but she doesn't wanna be with you anymore because you're never really there. I had a helpful illustration given to me about this uh, from the realm of pastoral ministry. So if you'll let me transfer, a, this, this was specifically from a pastor to a pastor, but I think the principle is basically the same, and so I'll just give it to everybody. I was trying to figure out how to balance my pastoral ministry with my family ministry uh, years ago. Now I've got this figured out. No, but I was, years ago I was thinking about it afresh, and I wound up uh, on a phone call for another reason with an itinerant preacher and mission leader, Paul Washer. And he gave me some advice that he applied to the pastoral ministry, but I think all men could apply to their lives this advice as they seek to make sure they're not neglecting their wives. I said, so how do you balance my ministry and my marriage? You could say your work and your marriage. And he said, well, Ryan, I look at God's word and I see that I am not supposed to sacrifice my ministry for my family. So he says, I see that I'm, I'm supposed to go all out for the ministry God gave me and I'm not supposed to just sacrifice it for my family. And then he said, then I look at God's word again and I see that I'm not supposed to sacrifice my family for my ministry. I'm supposed to be a good family man. He says, then I look at God's word again and I see that I'm supposed to sacrifice myself for both. That's so helpful. Because honestly, a lot of things can be solved by you just getting up earlier and you taking the hit by you dropping your leisure time, by you dying to yourself, rather than demanding that everyone die to you for your career or that your career die for your family, but rather you die for both. You're in a position of dying to yourself regularly to advance the kingdom of God.
Second cause of a man's neglect is just plain selfishness. He wants to watch the game, to to golf with the guys, to catch up with his Call of Duty buddies, to work for the promotion. And none of those things are in and of themselves bad, but when you take a man away from talking to his wife, thinking about the word from his wife, with his wife, and praying with his wife, and caring for the home they are building together, then you're being just negligent. And men, we must pull up the weeds of selfishness and spend time nourishing our wives. Again, we must be sacrificed so that those we are called to love are not neglected. And if there are not enough hours in the day to care for your wife and home, then the first thing to go should be our leisure, not their care. Third cause of neglect. And this is the one I think maybe would touch us, many of us, the deepest, and I think it's the one that corresponds to this word nourish that we're commanded to do. The the third cause of neglect is frustration. Frustration. Men get frustrated with leading their wives and they give up. I've said this and it's a terrible thing to say. It's it's embarrassing to say. And it's not true. But she can't be led. She won't come my way. She won't, I can't can't seem to to bring her along. And it's sort of the sense of futility. This, This can't work. And then the pity party that goes along after that. Right? Frustration comes up when a man uh, tried to lead in some way, got rebuked. He ran some ideas by her. She shot them down. He doesn't like feeling like such an ignored failure. He tried to correct her. He got mad. She got mad. He's been looking online for some good ideas to build an insulated man cave. Frustration can lead to neglect. Just the, you, you wanted to do something good. Didn't work. I'm done. But here's the thing. Here's where this word nourish. Men, listen to me. Please listen to me. Please listen to me. <laughs> nourish. Nourish. What happens when you nourish something? It grows. When you nourish something, it grows. So here is your wife currently. You try something, that did not work. You try it again, that did not work. And then male impulse, do it again and harder. Maybe harsher, get embittered. How's that going for you? Isn't there some definition of crazy in there? Right, if you do the same thing over and over and expect a different result, it's crazy. But this woman in front of you is a living, spiritual being made in the image of God. And she's just crazy anxiety. She's so emotional. She's so whatever, you name it. I can't get through to her. Well, you could feed her. What if the next time she's anxious, instead of condemning her anxiety, You gave her a verse about the peace and promises of God. What if the next time uh, she was nervous about something you were doing, you tried to communicate that you were not gonna do it in a way that made her nervous? There's a kind of feeding. Now, here's something I've noticed raising children. 
Feeding takes an extreme amount of time and results are imperceptible. And then they're radical. I mean, you just keep sticking food in that mouth for like 18 years and all of a sudden they're 5'11 and 180. It's amazing. And there ought to be a sense in which rather than like, oh, that's hopeless, she'd never change, I can't ever get through, what could I feed? How do I bring the word of God? How do I just keep talking about the word of God? I'm just kidding. One more illustration from pastoral life. I live a sheltered life. I only have one life, so I only have a limited number of illustrations. So one more pastoral illustration, but that's okay because the Bible says there's actually a, there's a link between managing your own house and managing the church. So years ago, we had a, we had a budget shortfall at Emmanuel and we weren't gonna make budget, it was lame. I think at the end of the day we did wind up, I think there was a big gift at the end of the year and that was wonderful and if you made that, thank you. But, uh, but we sort of got talking as elders and we were like, hey, that, that, this isn't good. We, we don't wanna see kind of budget shortfalls. We wanna see generous giving. And, and one of the things I've learned in pastoral ministry is that just striking sudden changes, congregations love that. If you just, if you just throw it in reverse and tell them everything's changing, people say, thank you, that's awesome. No, that's a lie. It's a lie. That's how to get fired and influence people. That's, that's, you don't want to do that. So we were talking about how to increase uh, giving and how to help people think about generosity. And, and we basically decided that we would speak about generosity from the pulpit every Sunday for 30 seconds. And some of you remember those years. We don't do it quite as often, but some of you remember five, six, seven years we went, and we literally said 30 to 40 seconds about giving every Sunday. And I think we went something like 10 years with a budget surplus after that. Just a little food, just a little food, just a little food, not a crisis moment, just a little food, and nourishing has an effect. And so some of us as husbands need to get a little bit of a longer plan. Okay, so you're seeing some problems in your wife, you're seeing some issues that need to be addressed, and rather than getting mad or frustrated or pushing hard or, you know, now's the time to lead, could I just start dripping something? And I don't mean dripping like nagging, I mean like dripping like feeding and encouraging and strengthening. And what might happen in a year or two or, or three? Well, this, this sermon series has been very consistent in this, and I kind of thought it might be, but it's just not fitting in the sermon time allotted. And so I'm gonna shut her down right now because I wanna keep, uh, I'll just keep going next week. We'll go, we'll go back to the husbands for week two again, just like the ladies had to endure. And so what I wanna do now is I wanna open up for the share time that we usually have uh, at the start of the service, before the preaching. And then when we're done sharing, I'll ask Pastor Jeff to come and pray over what's been shared and, and, uh, and just for us. So we've been talking about how New Testament life wasn't just a preacher preaching, but the congregation had spiritual gifts. And we want to share those spiritual gifts. Maybe God's got a testimony of how he's working in your life through these messages. Maybe it's something completely unrelated that would be good to just think about. I'll just give a little testimony. I have loved for many years the Paul David Tripp quote, it's amazing how much of the glory of God is edible. 
How many of the things that God shows his glory in are something you eat and enjoy? And I just want to say, as many of you know, James has been having some pretty significant problems with his eye, and we've been getting meals from the church. And I just want to say now, I don't just think how much of the glory of God is edible, I think how much of the mercy of God is edible. Thank you for all of your edible mercy uh, through the meal train. Let me pray, and then maybe someone would have something to share. Father, would you come and just help us to encourage or confess or to share in a way that would be profitable to your whole body. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.